Welcome to Between the Stacks, a podcast presented by the Athens-Limestone County Public Library. Each episode brings you into the library to meet our collection of people making an impact on the community of Athens and Limestone County, Alabama. People have a lot of things to say about Alabama and the South, assuming that we are the only place where all the problems come from. And I just got tired of people saying things like that to me when I would travel. Um, so people being like, oh my gosh, Alabama, are you okay there? Oh my goodness. Like, yeah, there's a lot of gnarly stuff going on here, but the whole country is gnarly. Like we have a lot to deal with as a country. So I wanted to write a poem to talk about that. Ashley M. Jones, Poet Laureate for the State of Alabama, reads a poem from her latest book, Reparations Now. All y'all really from Alabama. The straitjackets of race prejudice and discrimination do not wear only Southern labels. The subtle psychological technique of the North has approached in its ugliness and victimization of the Negro, the outright terror and open brutality of the South. Reverend Dr. Martin Luther King Jr., Why We Can't Wait. This here the cradle of this here nation. Everywhere you look, roots run right back south. Every vein filled with red dirt, blood, cotton. We the dirty words you spit out your mouth. Mason Dixon is an imagined line. You can theorize it or wish it real, but it's the same old ghost, see-through, benign. All y'all from Alabama. We the wheel turning cotton to make the nation move. We the scapegoat in a land built from death. No longitude or latitude disproves the truth of founding father's sacred oath. We hold these truths like dark snuff in our jaw. Black oppressions, not happenstance, it's law. After publishing three volumes of poetry and earning prestigious writing awards, Ashley M. Jones was appointed Alabama's Poet Laureate last September, making her both the youngest and first African-American to hold the post. She was honored in a ceremony at the State Capitol Building in Montgomery next to a marble tablet commemorating the Civil War secession. I have to start by saying I didn't realize I would be the first anything um, when I began dreaming of doing this when I was younger. I assumed, you know, being born in the 90s and growing up in the 90s and 2000s, I assumed naively that there would be no need for firsts when I was an adult. And of course, that's not true. But in that moment in the state house, in that room, I don't know how to really word it except to say that the ghosts were everywhere. I think there are always ghosts of good and bad origin, you know, around us all the time. But you could just kind of feel the thickness of it in the air. Like anytime you're in Montgomery, there's always this feeling that something is still there waiting to be resolved. And I didn't actually notice the plaque until somebody who was with me said, hey, did you see that over there? And like the way they said it, I was like, oh, no here is the moment because again being someone who is a person of color and i think this is true for any marginalized person in any given day there's always at least one thing that happens that reminds you oh wait this is the climate that i'm in 
So I, when I heard the, the friend say that, I was like, oh, maybe this is going to be it. And it sure was. In fact, we looked at the plaque that commemorated the secession of Alabama from the Union. In that very room is where the lawmakers voted to secede. And of course, we know what the secession was for. We know what the Civil War was about. We understand all of that history. And if we don't, there are many resources. In fact, this is a library, so I'm sure you can check out some books and read about that. Um, but to know that that's the room I was standing in as the first person of color, of any color, to hold the position in almost a century, I definitely felt that particular ghost in the air. In one way, I felt like, okay, I am meeting this force with the gravity of my appointment. I am, you know, stepping into a different kind of future for Alabama. But at the same time, I had that moment where it's like, even today, on a day when I'm trying to celebrate this achievement, something I've worked for, something I'm excited about, even today, something wants to remind me of what this place thinks about me. I'm carrying it, but it also feels like something that's energizing for me. It makes me remember that I do have to actively continue to educate both my students and anyone who reads my poems. I have to continue to stand up for the truth, for equity, for all of that. It's necessary. It's right here, right now, today. I think anybody who's who, anybody who's alive should be constantly finding their voice. But as far as hearing, I say, the call to do poetry, and somebody told me to use that language, and I said, I don't want to say I heard the call because, like, I'm not a preacher. She said, no, you say that. If that's what you heard, that's what you heard. You know, it is a, a calling. I think anything we do in life can be a calling. So anyway, I heard the call when I was seven. I already loved books. I was super into reading and the school that I went to um, in Birmingham, they had a huge focus on creation. So we always were writing books and I was a pretty shy kid. Um, I didn't like speaking in front of people and I was really self-conscious about a lot of different things. I was already feeling a little insecure about my race as well because I experienced racism um, in kindergarten. And that kind of started me on um, a path of low self-esteem and just questioning everything. I mean, it was really very difficult. and. I found myself afraid of my history because I learned what happened to us. I learned the truth. And the assignment was given to take something that we had read or that we were reading, memorize a part of it, and come to school and recite in costume. And um, I happened to be reading this book called Honey, I Love by Eloise Greenfield. It's a book of poems and it's about being black. Reading this book kind of reminded me that there was joy to be had in being black, first of all, which my parents always told us, but also there was joy in understanding our history, even through the pain. And so I memorized the poem, Harriet Tubman. Somebody like Harriet Tubman showed me there is strength in us, there is pride, and I'm descended from this amazing person. So I remember standing in front of the class to recite this poem dressed as Harriet Tubman, and as I began the poem, Harriet Tubman didn't take no stuff, wasn't scared of nothing neither, didn't come in this world to be no slave, and wasn't gonna stay one either. I remember just feeling very powerful in a way that I had not felt before. And I knew then that I had to continue living in poetry somehow. So I started writing that day 
I changed my spy journal into a poetry journal, and I've been writing ever since then. The Book of Tubman And God said, let her head be split, a black melon leaking. And God let iron sprout from the master's hand, and God breathed blood in the master's eyes and said, strike. And that's the story of the great crack in Harriet's skull that was an eye. That's the way God poured her full of visions, thick as sap, unmoving, slowed as a scab over the gash. And God said, let there be Harriet. And Araminta went on to glory. Araminta could smile in heaven, hoist her skirts above her ankles and dance. Harriet on earth kept that sweet eye fixed on the North Star, kept her pistol cocked, each bullet an unsaid prayer. And God made a railroad out of dirt and sweat, made a train out of a woman. And God made her hair a burning bush, her body so holy, even he called her Moses. Honestly, Harry Tubman, I don't know how we deserved someone like Harry Tubman here on planet Earth. I mean, as a kid, you know, you learn about the um, Underground Railroad and you just have like a vague idea of this person freeing people. But when I was an adult and I started doing some research on her and, you know, writing these poems, I was like, whoa, I didn't understand half of what it was that she actually did. When you think about running, walking, swimming, climbing, all those miles on your own feet, first of all, but then to think about what she was facing, um, to know that she was facing certain death her entire life. I mean, she already was as an enslaved person, but somebody who was going back over and again to take people to figure out the right path, to encourage them to keep going over and over again. That is incredible. And all of it coming from, like it all came from this injury that she received from her master. He hit her over the head with a piece of iron for whatever reason, I don't remember the reason. I mean, nobody needed a reason in those days and maybe in these days either. But from that came all of this goodness and healing. Even after such an assault, she was able to hear and see God in a different way and find the strength to get out of there and take everybody else with her. And then, you know, to, to understand that that's who I'm descended from, She's all of our ancestors, but as a black woman, like literally, I am one of her. It makes you feel like you're somebody. Writing is a spiritual practice for me. I feel like all of us are given something, some talent, some special thing. And that thing that we can do is, to me, a way to access God and a way to just create light throughout the world. So I find a lot of joy in meeting my ancestors in poems and even in the poems which are difficult to write. The act of writing the poem sometimes can help to heal me if no one else, you know, I, I can feel empowered in telling this true story and understanding the story and understanding my place in it. Um, but one in particular from my latest book talks about Mary Turner 
who is someone I didn't know about actually until I was writing this poem. So the poem came after learning about her and I was so outdone. I mean, I thought I was someone who had read about all the lynchings, you know, I knew the worst of the worst, I thought. And reading this history just hit me in a way that was so, it's hard to put words around it because reading that history, knowing that she was just a black woman trying to get justice, trying to live her life, and they, the, the crowd, the lynch mob did this horrible thing to her, I could feel that in my body, you know. Um, we do carry the histories of people who we're descended from. And I needed to write this poem, but it was very painful to think about. So the poem is called Mary Don't You Weep or Mary Turner Resurrected. When Mary Turner threatened to press charges for the wrongful lynching of her husband in Brooks County, Georgia on May 19th, 1918, she was strung upside down, her clothes were burned off, and her unborn baby was cut from her womb and stomped to death. Turner was shot repeatedly, and she and her baby were buried close by their murder site. Like all resurrections, it began with blood, dirt, unending light, the Georgia moss punctuated by camellias, their white hurt stretching across Brooks County, no blight to stain their leaves, just the ash falling bloody from Mary's emblazoned womb. Her baby, a fire, its single soft cry still igniting the air. Could it be that even this baby, even this one-breathed angel, was crucified to save us all? Maybe. Maybe Mary and her baby flew up from death in sweaty Georgia, her shallow grave shaken loose, finally free, resurrected. It turns out, all along, hell was earth. What else could she name that rock covered in leaf and loam? Not loving, not hopeful, and most certainly not home. You know, in, in reading this history of Mary Turner, I was like, man, that's terrible. Well, I guess at least it was 100 years ago. And then mm. like the next week is when Stefan Clark got murdered. So um, these two poems came together. Um, because again, I was just thinking about, you know, how they were almost a hundred years exactly to the day. They're a month or so apart. And also the idea of lynching was something I was thinking about a lot and that we maybe need to start calling these things that again, um, so that we can't just write it off as, oh, it's just a fluke or, you know, people were confused or a few bad apples or all these things that we say, we need to say lynching so that we can understand um, what it is that is happening and that no one is exempt from deciding to murder somebody. Um, this is Stefan, Don't You Moan, or To Serve and Protect. 22-year-old father of two, Stefan Clark, was shot 20 times on March 19, 2018, by Sacramento police in his grandmother's backyard. The gun police claimed to have seen him carrying 
was his iPhone. Is there a police protocol for grace? For the moment between show us your hands and shoot? That night, policeman, servant of the gun, did you give space for a man's innocence to bloom? Despite the loaded weight of your finger on the trigger, despite how the night painted that man bigger, made him a giant with a fireball in his hands, despite the loud explosion of your fright, innocence is for softer things, an open, empty palm, a blooming flower, a spread of rocks becoming sand. Silly civilization, you thought we'd evolved beyond abuse of power, but again, a pruning. What a flower you were, Stefan, and what holiness in your body opening, petaled in the white helicopter light. This, an Armageddon of bullets, flowers, stars, stripes. Well, I was just going to say about those two poems, for anybody keeping score, these are sonnets. Um, I was obsessed with sonnets while writing this book. In fact, I thought it was going to be a book of only sonnets. And I'm also a fan of a poet named Gwendolyn Brooks. Um, basically, I realized that Gwendolyn Brooks wrote in form. She wrote sonnets and she did a lot of interesting things to transform formal poetry and make it about the people. And I'm also a huge fan of a poet named Patricia Smith, who I would say is a literary descendant of Brooks. They're both Chicago poets. So I was obsessed with that form. And I wanted to, as Brooks did, take something that was unquestionably artistic. Um, so like a lot of these like ivory tower poets think that form is the utmost, you know, of, of poetry. You can't get any more artistic than form. So I thought, well, cool, I'm going to do what my ancestors did. Take your form that you hold so dear. And I like the form. I'm not saying there's anything wrong with form, um, right. but I'm going to take that and tell a truth that you need to hear. And you can't tell me that it's not artistic because in this form you said was unquestionably artsy. Um, so that's why it's in a sonnet form. So the side A and side B, um, first I'll say, I sometimes I have to explain what a cassette tape is to some audiences. <laughs> I wanted to make this poetic cassette tape to explain um, a situation that a lot of us find ourselves in when we go to quote unquote progressive schools or independent schools or any sort of school that's not, um, you know, how do I want to say this? Schools that tout their progressiveness and do have great educational programs, but the diversity is sometimes lacking. Um, so, you know, I found myself one of few or the only black person in my classes growing up. And often those spaces are the ones in which the most micro or macro aggressions happen because people think they're already, they've already achieved perfection, if that makes any sense. And it, you know, happened all throughout my school career, all throughout. So I wanted to highlight these experiences just to remind everybody, these things do still happen. We all have to be vigilant. All of us have to be vigilant and reevaluate ourselves constantly. So these poems sort of explain or address that. Also just sort of address that there is not a such thing as an age that's too young to learn about these things. 
because those of us who are from those marginalized groups, nobody cares that we're young when they discriminate against us. So I do think it's important, maybe necessary, for children to start understanding what it means to be anti-racist, to understand history and how to treat people instead of pretending like it's not there. So yeah, that's what these two poems are sort of addressing. Side A, third grade birthday party. When we pulled up at her house, I realized that feeling I felt in kindergarten when my best friend's family made him leave my blackness alone, when he and this blonde wonder played house, she replacing me, when I couldn't even play blocks with them, my hands too dark and small, that feeling as she stole the laughs right out of my precious little throat, when she stole the plastic broccoli and steak from my wooden cooktop, that feeling can happen when your parents take you to that blonde birthday party in the suburbs and even the cobblestones cackle at how out of place you look. Side B, Roebuck is the ghetto. High school friend, he really just a boy. He really just a boy who sit at my lunch table. He really just a metallic smile and a slice of ham between white bread. He say, where you live? I say, Roebuck. Say, you know, over by, that's the ghetto. He say, that's where black folks stay. He say, that's po folk. He say, you less than me. He say, you not as good as the crumbs living between my teeth. No, it's a suburb, I say. Suburb? Roebuck no suburb, he say. Hoover, Vestavia, Mountain Brook are suburbs. Suburbs is white. My neighbor's white, I say. Neighbors listen to Rush Limbaugh. Neighbors work the polling place and ask if we Republican. Neighbors cut our grass without asking when we first moved in. Neighbors think we good. You don't know about Roebuck, I say. He smile. He laugh. He chew my zip code like an old wad of gum. Oh, I know, he say. I know it all. Now say too, art really can help you to find other ways of expression. Broken Sonnet for the Decorative Cotton for Sale at Whole Foods is a poem that did a lot for me personally because I literally did see this cotton at Whole Foods. And I don't know, the whole discussion of cotton, people don't always want to have it because they get very defensive. Um, in fact, somebody got defensive when I posted about this cotton that I saw in Whole Foods saying, you know, we all wear cotton, cotton's not evil, and blah, blah, blah. And I'm like, okay, I never said cotton was evil. I'm talking about what my people and her people, for that matter, because everybody was a sharecropper, you know, at a certain point in time. And, you know, we're trying to get out of that situation. But I was thinking about what cotton represents as a black Southerner. It's not just a plant, and it's a beautiful plant, but to think about this crop that my ancestors had to pick 
for hours and hours and hours on end, fingers bleeding. They were not asked if they wanted to pick the cotton. They had no financial stake in the sale of the cotton. They were exploited. That's what cotton means to me. I can't unsee images of fields of cotton and enslaved people working it beyond what their bodies really could do. And to see it being sold in one of those suburbs as a decorative item, it just was hard for me to really contend with. And certainly in Alabama, like, I don't know, I feel like you're making a statement there. And what I wanted to do when I saw that cotton was throw the display over and burn everything down. But obviously that's not a very useful way to spend my energy, so I decided a poem would have to do. And it did help me feel much better, I have to say. I felt like this was a way of burning that stand down. So it's called Broken Sonnet for the decorative cotton for sale at Whole Foods. Who knew? All you had to do was wrap three stems of dirty cotton in cellophane, call it a bouquet, and sell it on the white side of town to make a decent living. Grandmother, instead of picking clean each spiny mouth, why didn't you weave the woodsy stalks into a wreath, the perfect autumnal decor in suburban Alabama? Instead of sharecropper, factory worker, cleaner of White House, why not start an Etsy shop? Make little cotton ribbons to adorn blonde curls. String your daughter's baby teeth on a thin gold rope and call them pearls. Being a black person, it's, it's a miracle to have um, time here on earth and to have your parents here with you. They haven't been taken away in some way. Um, but to also have them be so intentional in making sure we celebrate our culture at all moments in life. I know that I wouldn't be the person who I am, the woman who I am, if I didn't have my mom. Um, she just has been and is such an incredible example for us in how to move through the world. Um, my mom stayed at home to raise us. Um, both my parents have college degrees. They met in college. Um, they both, you know, have worked before, but they made the choice that my mom would stay home with us. And that was a mutual choice. And they never said, this is your life too. It was always, you do whatever makes sense for you. You have to make your own choices in life and you can do anything you want. And they never pressured me to have children, get married, none of that. Like it was always do your thing, you know, which is radical. I know now, but back then I was like, oh, all parents are like this. And that's just not true. Um, so I will read a poem about my mom. It starts with, um, Family Matters, which I also have to explain to so many people who are young, but I love that show. I love Steve Urkel. It's a situation comedy about a black family in Chicago and um, they're, you know, a regular family and then they have this ridiculous neighbor, Steve Urkel. But anyway, it starts in that show and balloons out to my mom. Harriet Winslow and Aunt Rachel clean collard greens on primetime television. In their dollhouse kitchen, they clean a bouquet of collards while the comedy of errors unfolds around them. Harriet in her pantsuit and that black mother smirk that signals the hard love only a mother can muster. This holy kitchen culinary sanctuary covers them in light. It's white glory, a bouquet 
around their perfect hair. Their fingers know no errors as they pick and place the collards. There was an earthy magic in my mother cleaning collards. Their mineral scent, the sink full of water my mother plunged them into, the water which washed them of their errors, greens baptized, clean from sediment and rock, our kitchen sink, her pulpit, the leafy bouquet, her holy book. How we wished we could be them, touched by our mother's godly hands, then cleaned so well we forgot they were just collards. They glistened, a sparkling bouquet of dinner yet to come, so loved by our mother that even they forgot their natural bitterness. A kitchen is sweetened when collards are cooking, the air a swelling pork fat perfume, the onions pungent terror nulled by the ribboned greens. I loved to watch my mother cut them, roll the piles of flat foliage up like a cigar, the kitchen knife shining against a tight army of collards. We needed no superheroes when we had her, a mother to rival every black mom on cable. No fragrant bouquet could rival the smell of her greens and cornbread, the bouquet of cotton swabs and peroxide she'd use to sanitize our playground errors. She was a magician, more than just another mother. She could turn an afro into a constellation of braids, adorn them with a galaxy of beads. She could turn a sprawling batch of collards into a smooth and savory feast, a world exploding in her small kitchen. Someday, mother, I will inherit that sweet bouquet of cocoa butter, blue magic, kitchen smoke, and calm night air the perfume of black motherhood. One day, I will learn how to cook them collards. There's plenty of poems about my mom and my dad, both my parents. I love them so much, but um, this poem does mean a lot to me. It's the poem that I wrote for my dad's funeral last year, and I read it at his funeral, which was difficult, but felt very necessary, and I was very proud to do it. But again, for those keeping score, this is in a form. This is in the acrostic form, which typically we see um, with younger children, we always teach them you know, to write your name and then write a poem from that. Um, and that's what I've done here with my dad's name, but I have to give credit to a poet named Fasil Mohoyuddin, who um, is a living poet in Chicago. And he told me that he uses the acrostic to memorialize people, um, but also he used them to court his wife. He would put secret messages on the left side, like, I love you. And if she didn't get it, she didn't get it, and he was safe. But if she did get it, you know, he hoped that she felt the same way. But I wanted to use this form for many reasons, you know, to keep my dad in the poem, but also I needed a structure because there's nothing more difficult than being asked to write a poem for your father who has just passed away and looking at a blank page. Like there's too much to say and nothing to say simultaneously. For Donald Lewis Jones. Dad, 
Every blade of grass wears your name. On the wind, you laugh in great swaths of air. Now, the days feel more like years because you're gone. Only memories hold your voice and the crack of your knees stretching in the night. Listen, I want to tell you about a man who was deliberate, delicate in his loving, complete in his care. Let me show you my skin, my blood, which is his. Even the sunrise I hold with his eyes, which are my eyes, my heart, which is his. In the quiet times, we wonder where you are. Sometimes feels like your truck will turn the corner just in time for dinner. Your keys chiming up the stairs. Out in the garden, your plants still grow. Now we will give them water and time. Every season, a harvest started by your hands, showing your love all-encompassing forever. I do feel very proud to represent my people and to represent Alabama and to offer a different vision of what it means to be an Alabama public voice. And what I do for the next four years is a little bit up to me. The language in the Constitution is pretty loose, so I'm just required to be the face of poetry, to promote poetry throughout our state, and to just be available to do speaking engagements or visit classrooms or anything that promotes poetry throughout Alabama. Um, and so what I'm going to do for the next four years is all of that. I'll be doing what I already was doing before I was named Poet Laureate, which means I'll be giving readings, doing workshops, lectures, teaching, and also traveling across the country and representing Alabama in that way. Before I was just Ashley M. Jones poet. Now, um, when I go somewhere, I'm also carrying the state of Alabama, you know, with me. Ashley M. Jones will be Alabama's Poet Laureate through 2026. She is currently a faculty member at the Alabama School of Fine Arts, as well as the founder of the Magic City Poetry Festival in Birmingham, Alabama. Her books are available at the library and online. You've been listening to Between the Stacks, a podcast from the Athens-Limestone County Public Library. To hear other recordings from our Library Voices podcast series, check out our website at alcpl.org. Library Voices is also available on Spotify and Apple Podcasts.